Good morning once again, Hope Church. How are y'all doing? Fits, right? I think I'm going to end each sentence with E-I-E-I-O. No, that would take too long. But hey, it's really, really good to be back with you guys today sharing from God's Word. I missed you guys. Did you guys miss me? Oh, you're just saying that. But no, we were up in Wisconsin. We had a, a, a lovely time visiting with our daughter. Many of you know that she moved up there about a year ago. So we got a chance to spend some time with her. And by the way, today is her and her twin sister's birthday. It was, whoopsie. You okay there, Wesley? There you go. Now, it was, it was should I say the number? They probably don't care, right? It was 31 years ago that my brave wife gave birth to twin daughters, and our oldest was only 13 months at the time. We had lots of fun back then, let me tell you, lots of fun. But you know, that, that tells you that my kids kind of grew up in a little bit of a different age. They grew up in what I refer to as the VCR days. The video cassette recorder days. So they learned very early on how to put a VHS tape in the machine and push the play button. They also learned how to hit the rewind and play button again. See, they would watch the same movie over and over and over again. I don't know, do kids still do that these days? I mean, the same movie. It started with 101 Dalmatians. The, the animated version that was released back in the 60s. They would just watch it over and over again. We did eventually get them to kind of break out of that. And we got them into some of these other Disney movies. One of them that I recall was Aladdin. Aladdin. And this was a movie that sort of intrigued me because it, in a sense, provides a window into human nature. Now, you probably all know the story. Aladdin finds this magic lamp. He rubs it. A genie comes out and tells Aladdin that he will fulfill his every wish. Well, Aladdin wants more than anything to marry the sultan's daughter. But she's a princess. And he's nothing but a street urchin. And marriages like that, that would not happen. That would not be allowed. So what Aladdin does is he wishes for the genie to make him rich, to give him riches and wealth, make him a prince, so that he could impress the sultan and thereby gain his approval to marry his daughter. And it works. It works. Aladdin marries the princess. Now there's a lot of other subplots and things going on in the story but I just want to stop for a moment to really ponder Aladdin's wish because I think it tells us something about human nature. Think for a moment, if you would, about what you would wish for. And no wishing for more wishes. No, you can't do that. But what would you wish for? Or maybe you've played that game, you know, what if I won the lottery? Now, what if I won one of those multi-million dollar jackpots? What would I do? 
Well, I think the average person would start kind of thinking about the debts that they'd probably pay off, right? But then maybe the cars that they'd buy, or the homes, or the property, or maybe you single guys would, would try to figure out how to impress that special girl. Hopefully, you married guys would try to figure out how to make your wife happy. That'd be a really smart thing to do. My point is this. We more than likely would first seek to satisfy ourselves and our family. Assuming, of course, you like your family. Now, I know that most of us would eventually get around to that, you know, that charity stuff. Yeah, 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 I'll, I'll give lots of money to charity, give money to the church. But as an aside, you know, what are you doing with your resources today? You know, it's easy to say, when I'm rich, I'm going to give a lot of money to charity. What are you doing with your resources today? That's a whole other sermon. But the truth is, friends, human nature leans to the selfish side and maybe taking care of ourselves first. Now, I bring this up because one of the most prominent characters in the Bible had an Aladdin moment. Anybody think of who that might be? Solomon, right? Absolutely, Solomon. We find that story in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and 1 Kings chapter 3. Same story, different places. Now, it wasn't a magic genie that came to Solomon, but it was the Lord God Almighty. And God said to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, Solomon could have asked for riches, right? Great wealth or honor, everything necessary for a nice life, or maybe even to impress some girl. He could have asked for the death of his enemies or for a long life. He could have asked for anything, but what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom, right? Wisdom. He asked for knowledge and discernment so that he could lead God's people. And this pleased God. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we read, So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart. Wisdom. Wisdom. We all need wisdom. Maybe today more than ever. We need wisdom in making our daily choices. We need wisdom in making the big decisions of life. Friends, we all need wisdom. And wisdom isn't something that necessarily comes with age. You realize that, right? Just because you're old doesn't mean that you're wise. Jonathan Edwards once wrote this. He said, There is not so much difference before God between children and grown persons as we are ready to imagine. We are all poor, ignorant, foolish babes in his sight. Our adult age does not bring us so much near to God as we are apt to think. And what Edwards is saying there is we need 
to seek wisdom, but not, not an experience. Where do you think we could find wisdom? Where? In the Word, in Scriptures, right? We've said this many times. We believe here at Hope Church that the Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God. And in it, in it we find everything necessary for our salvation and for godly living. And quite honestly, friends, that is, that is a very brief and succinct definition of wisdom. If we need wisdom, we look to the Scriptures. We look in particular to what is referred to as the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature. And that includes books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon, and then there are certain psalms that are considered wisdom psalms. Those comprise the wisdom literature of the Bible. And each of these books has a keen interest in the way that the world works, our place within it, and how all of this operates under God's perfect sovereign care. So biblical wisdom allows us to live in harmony with God's ordering of the world. But there's a little bit of a problem because you don't hear a lot taught or, or, or preached from this wisdom literature. We don't see many Bible studies on Ecclesiastes or on Job. Because if, if you're kind of familiar with those books... Those books can tend to be a little like um, kind of depressing. But remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, friends, and that includes these books that we might consider a little dry or maybe even kind of depressing. Now, we could spend years going through all the books of the wisdom literature, and we will in the future from time to time dip into the wisdom literature. But for this summer, this summer in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at what I'm going to call wisdom for today. Wisdom for today. And this is going to be a survey of the first nine books of Proverbs. If you're familiar with Proverbs, you know that the first nine books are, are a, a collection of poems that extend over several verses. And in those poems, we see descriptions of wisdom and the benefits of walking in wisdom. And then it's in chapters 10 to 31 that we find those really short, concise, one or two line proverbs. And those, those tend to be thematic and, you know, maybe we'll look at those next summer. But for this summer and for the next nine weeks, we're going to focus on the wisdom found in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. This week... We are going to start at the beginning. Good place to start, right? 
We're going to start at the beginning of Proverbs, but friends, we're going to start at the beginning of wisdom. So turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning. Proverbs, pretty easy to find. It's kind of right in the middle of your Old Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, it's a big book. You should stumble upon it pretty easily. So Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 begins like this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So this first verse here tells us who the author of this book is. It's Solomon, son of King David. Solomon, we talked about him just a moment ago. But this isn't to say that Solomon wrote the entire book of Proverbs. He wrote a good chunk of it. There's at least two other authors that are mentioned, Agur and Lemuel, and then chapter 31 is of an unknown author. But at the very least, Solomon is the one that wrote a good portion of this, and he collected all of these other Proverbs, and he included them in with his own book. Now, we know from 1 Kings chapter 4 that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and the breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. And that, as verse 31 tells us, he was wiser than anyone else. Solomon is probably the wisest person to ever live. And he shares that wisdom with us here. Now, the following five verses really give the purpose and the benefit of the book. He tells us in verse 2 that these Proverbs are for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight. So the attentive reader, emphasis is on attentive reader, will be blessed with wisdom, instruction, understanding, and insight. We're not just gaining knowledge. We're not just collecting facts. That's easy. We live in the information age. There's so much information and knowledge that we can that we can gain from the internet, smartphones, computers. But there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. You can know things and not be wise. Knowledge is the collection of facts. Wisdom is the right use of those facts. For godly living. Now verse 3 tells us that the wisdom found in here is practical and it's moral. These proverbs are for receiving instruction in prudent behavior. Doing what is right and just and fair. So these proverbs will tell us how to act according to God's plan. You want to act prudently and morally? You want to act in righteousness? You want to act justly and fairly? It's in here. The wisdom offered here is also intellectual. Verse 4 says, It is for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. And the simple refers here really to the uneducated, the ones that are in need of instruction. It will also make the young and inexperienced one knowledgeable and discreet. You want to know what to do and how to do it in life? 
It's in here. The wisdom found in here is also for the already wise to add to their wisdom and knowledge. Verse 5 says, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. So this isn't just for the simple and the unexperienced. No, it's for everyone. All can benefit. The wise become wiser. I don't know, is that a word? The wise become more wise. They grow in their learning and in their guidance. Remember, according to Edwards, we're all ignorant babes in the eyes of the Lord. You want to grow in your wisdom and knowledge? It's in here. And the wisdom offered here is mysterious. Verse 6 tells us that this wisdom is for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Not only can this wisdom unlock the mysteries of the proverbs and parables, and Jesus taught using a lot of parables, but it can help us solve difficult problems and the riddles of life. You want the kind of wisdom that gives mysterious guidance with complex concepts and sayings, you know, the riddles of the wise, as it says here? It's in here. If you want practical, moral, intellectual, increasing, and mysterious wisdom, listen to what the Word of God has to say. And listen to what Solomon has to say about where to begin. Because in verse 7 he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Friends, true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It's what Solomon tells us here in Proverbs. But you know, the other wisdom literature books, they agree. At the end of Ecclesiastes, after considering the frivolous nature of life, Solomon concludes there, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. In Job chapter 29, in, in, in both verses 12 and 20, the questions are asked, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? The answer is found in verse 28 of that same chapter. It says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And then right here at the beginning of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord. Friends, it all begins with the fear of the Lord. And again, if you look at Lord in your Bible, you will see that it is in all capitals. And what does that mean? Yahweh, right? The I am, the God of the Bible, it all begins with fear of God. If we don't start there, friends, we get nowhere. But you know, that kind of begs the question. And this is the question that we're going to wrestle with a little bit for the rest of our time together this morning. What is fear of the Lord? What does it mean to fear God? Well, there's many examples of fear in the scriptures. Many of these we've talked about and explored in the past. If you remember, at Christmas time, prior to the birth of Christ, we looked at when angels appeared. 
Remember, angels appeared to Zechariah, and they appeared to Mary, and they appeared to the shepherds in the field. And, and, and how did they react? They were afraid, right? In each case, they were afraid. But, but this kind of fear that we're talking about here, it's more of a fear of, for one's life. So, yeah, it gives us a little bit of an idea, but we're not quite there. Now, a good example is the theophany that was experienced by our friend Habakkuk. If you recall in our study of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk experienced a theophany. The manifestation of the presence of God, similar to what we read about in Exodus chapter 19, Moses on Mount Sinai, he experienced a theophany. It was a manifestation of the presence of God in thunder and lightning and, and, and the cloud and the, and the pillar of fire. And our friend Habakkuk had a very similar experience. He saw the power and the majesty of God in his sovereign reign over all creation. And he was what? He was afraid, right? We read it about a few weeks ago. My heart pounded, he said. My lips quivered. Fear. But, but, Habakkuk chose to place his trust in God. He put his faith in Yahweh. So now, now we're kind of starting to zero in on what this means here. But I want to take a look at some of the reactions that we see to Jesus in the New Testament. And again, these are some things that we've, we've explored in the past. When Jesus calmed the storm. You know, in that story, Mark tells us that the disciples, they were afraid in the storm. They were afraid. In this case, they were fearing for their lives. But then after Jesus says, peace be still. And the waters grew calm. They no longer feared for their lives. But another kind of fear gripped them. Mark 4, 41 says, They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Picture becoming a little bit clearer now? Let's look at one more. When Jesus told Peter and the other fishermen to go out and let down your nets, even after a long night of fishing and, and, and catching nothing, Jesus says, go out, let down your nets on the other side of the boat. I know these guys, they rolled their eyes, but they went out there and reluctantly, they did it. And what happened? Another miracle. So many fish, their net was breaking. And how did Peter respond? We see it in Luke chapter 5. He says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see where we're going with this? You getting the picture? I think you have the idea, but what I want to do is I want to just take a few moments here to just really, to really zero in and emphasize a few points that we can take home today. Because I want us to leave here with a clear understanding of what Solomon's talking about here. If this, in fact, is the basis for all wisdom, 
We need to begin, friends, with the fear of the Lord. So the first thing that we must do, and this is something that we uh, saw from these examples that we looked at briefly this morning. The first thing we need to do is we need to recognize. Recognize. We must first recognize who God is. Friends, the God of the Bible is the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, Yahweh, created the heavens and the earth. Everything we see was created by God. And friends, he sustains it all. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, he is before all things. In other words, he is the creator and in him all things hold together. God holds the world in the palm of his hand. I love what the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 45 of his book. He writes these words. He says, for this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. We must recognize who God is. But friends, we must also recognize who we are. In other words, we must recognize and understand our place in His world. He is God and we are not. And friends, that is something that I am eternally grateful for. Because I know me. I know my nature. I'm sinful. I'm selfish. I do not want a God like that. No. No. He is God and we are not. We are His creation. David reminds us in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And friends, that includes each and every one of us. In fact, Acts 17 tells us in Him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Friends, we are dependent on God for everything. We are dependent on God for every breath. We are dependent on Him for every heartbeat, for our daily bread. We are dependent on Him for everything, including and in particular, our salvation. We depend on Jesus' blood for our salvation. Because as Romans tells us, there is none righteous, not even one. We cannot rely on our own goodness. We cannot rely on our own righteousness to save us. But friends, thanks be to God that he sent his one and only son, who is in fact God himself, that whoever believes on him will be saved. We must recognize who we are. We need God. We need Jesus. We need to recognize. And then we need to respond. 
Remember we said knowledge is useless unless we act upon it. What's our response? Well, I think Habakkuk and Peter give us a pretty good idea. We fall on our knees. We fall on our faces with the reverence and the awe and, yes, the fear that is due the God of all creation, the God of our salvation. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He said, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Fear of the Lord. Charles Bridges gives us a pretty short and accurate definition. He says that fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. We love God. We revere him. We humble ourselves before him. And we follow and we obey him. Is that what we see in the world today? Do we see fear of the Lord? More importantly, is that where you're at today? See, unfortunately, it seems that fear of the Lord seems to be missing from much of our society because people don't recognize who God is and they don't recognize their place in His world. And if they don't know, friends, they can't react. But remember, it is our job, it is our job to enlighten them, to show them the truth about God and about His Son, Jesus Christ. That's our job. We want to help people grow in wisdom, in knowledge, as we continue to grow in wisdom ourselves. So I invite you on this journey this summer, this quest for godly wisdom. And friends, at the beginning of it all is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we recognize, Lord, who you are. We recognize that you are the almighty God, the creator of the cosmos, and there is no other. And we recognize who we are. We are poor, foolish babes in your sight. But Lord, we know that you will bless us with wisdom if we seek you. And Father, I just pray that, that as we seek you in these coming weeks, seek wisdom, we just pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit and you would pour out your wisdom. Bless us. Be with us on this journey, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.